What is on your heart? What are your burdens? What are your hopes? What gives you joy? What is on your heart? How you and I answer that question reveals a lot about who we are. But most of us, I think, hesitate to try and answer a question like that. And we hesitate because opening ourselves up can be dangerous. When we share what is really on our heart, it makes us vulnerable, doesn't it? Vulnerable to being hurt, being betrayed. And so most of us probably only have a few people we would really share our heart with. Some of us may not even have anyone we would share it with. As we turn to John's Gospel this morning, we come to one of the most remarkable passages in the New Testament. It's a remarkable passage because in this passage, Jesus Christ shares what is on his heart. It's also remarkable because of who Jesus is speaking to in this passage. In recent weeks, we've heard Jesus speaking to his close group of disciples. But now we're going to hear him speak to his Father in heaven. In all of the New Testament, this is the most extended prayer of Jesus that we have recorded. We get to listen at length as God the Son shares his heart with God the Father. We will hear Jesus share what is on his heart with regard to himself, with regard to his first disciples, and with regard to those who will believe in him through the witness of those first disciples. And all of this has relevance for us as men and women who worship and follow this Jesus. The one who's sharing his heart here is our Savior. Jesus' life was characterized by prayer. We know from the Gospels he regularly withdrew by himself to speak to his Father. But here he allows his closest disciples to listen in so that we today can learn from his prayer. As I said, there are three parts to it. This morning, we're just going to look at the first part, the heart of our Savior with regard to himself. I'm going to be gone for the next two Sundays. After that, we'll plan to look at his desires for his first disciples and then his desires for those who will become his disciples. We're in John chapter 17, and if you're using a church Bible, that's page 1085. In the larger print Bibles, 1679. And we're going to read just the first five verses. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this 
is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This is God's word. And it tells us the heart of our Savior with regard to himself is to display his Father's goodness to give us his Father's gift, to do all his Father's will, and to be with his Father. First, in verse 1, the heart of our Savior is to display his Father's goodness. In verse 1, Jesus begins this prayer by saying, Father, the hour has come. One of the significant realities that lie behind this prayer is what theologians call the pact of salvation. Another way of referring to it is the covenant of redemption. What those labels are trying to describe is the fact that the work of salvation did not begin with what we know as the incarnation. It didn't begin when God the Son came to earth as a man. The work of salvation began in eternity past with an agreement or a pact between God the Father and God the Son along with God the Holy Spirit. We might call that a fellowship of salvation. All three persons of the Trinity entered into it as a joint work. That fellowship of salvation was already in existence during the time of the Old Testament. And God the Son's arrival on earth in human flesh, that was not the beginning. It was a step in the outworking of the pact of salvation. That is the reality which lies behind Jesus' words here in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. We've heard Jesus say this before in John's Gospel. He's not talking about a specific hour of the day. He means the event of his death. And what comes after his death? His resurrection from the dead and his ascension back to his Father's side in heaven. All of that is one inseparable package that Jesus refers to as his hour or the hour. It's all one eternally significant event. It's an eternally significant event that was planned and agreed upon by Father, Son, and Spirit long, long before this day. And if you're wondering why that matters, it matters because it shows the event that secured your salvation has a deep firm foundation. The love of God that acted to secure your salvation is not a frivolous, lightly considered love. It's not the kind of love that springs up in a moment and can fizzle out in a moment. This is a love that goes deeper than you and I could ever get our minds around. 
Its roots go deep into the eternal fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Our reading earlier from 1 Peter told us this hour Jesus is entering into was scheduled before the creation of the world. Now finally it has come. Look how Jesus describes what's going to happen in this hour. Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Jesus is praying that what has been planned will now take place. And we've already noticed what is planned is Jesus' death on the cross. So how can Jesus describe that as the Son being glorified? How can it glorify the Father? Well, let's back up and think about what it means for God to be glorified. What is God's glory? God's glory is the display of his character. God himself explained that in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, Moses asked God to show him his glory. And in reply to Moses, God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. Now, God was not ignoring Moses' question and answering a different question. God was saying, my glory is my goodness. My glory is who I truly am. My glory is my character. And true to his word, God did cause all his goodness to pass in front of Moses. Here's how it's described in the book of Exodus. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That is God's goodness. That is his glory. He is a God of love. A forgiving God. And at the same time, he is a God who doesn't turn a blind eye to evil. He doesn't act like evil is insignificant. He takes it seriously like we would expect a good God to do. How good would he be if he said evil didn't matter? Or if he said, I realize the world's a bad place, so I'll overlook the evil in it. Because after all, you're all only copying your ancestors, your parents. No, a good God must take evil seriously, including evil that comes about because we're copying our parents. And yet you can see there is a real tension here. Forgiving sin is part of God's glory, And taking sin seriously and punishing it is also part of God's glory. 
Both are part of his character. But how can he do both? How can his full glory ever be displayed? As the God who forgives sin and punishes it. There's a tension. And that tension sat there all through the Old Testament. It sat there all through the years of Jesus' life on earth. And now that tension is about to be resolved. God's full glory is about to be displayed on the cross. As on the cross, God the Son takes the guilt of a sinful world on himself and takes the punishment for it on himself. So that those who trust in him can be forgiven of their sin. The cross displays the depth of our good God's hatred of evil and sin. And it displays the depth of our good God's love for those who are lost in evil and sin. What Moses heard announced in the Old Testament is about to be displayed on the cross. God the Son is glorified as he does the work and God the Father is glorified by the Son. As the Son's work displays the character of the Father who sent him. As Jesus, our Savior, prays, we see that his heart is to display his Father's goodness. And second, to give us his Father's gift. In verse 2, speaking about himself, Jesus says, For you granted him, that's the Son, you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. We've seen that on the cross, God the Father is glorified by the Son because the Son's work on the cross displays the character of the Father. And here Jesus is expanding on that. The cross is not only about the Father and the Son being glorified. The same event that glorifies them also gives God's gift to us. Sometimes people read what the Bible says about God's glory and they get all offended by it. They get put out by it because they think that God being glorified somehow leaves them in the shadows. In fact, objecting to the creator being glorified is just a petty, petulant way of saying that we, the creatures, ought to be getting the glory instead. That we ought to be the center of attention. That's silly. It's sulky. But what is amazing here is the fact that God being glorified actually doesn't leave you and me out at all. God being glorified results in you and me being blessed. God being glorified results in you and me receiving God's gift. The idea in verse 2 is that in eternity past, in the pact of salvation that we talked about earlier, 
God the Son was granted authority over all of humanity. That authority would come to him on the basis of his work as the crucified and then risen Savior. As the crucified, then risen Savior, all things would be placed under the Son's feet. And from that sovereign position as King of the universe, the Son will give God's gift to those the Father has given him. In other words, the crucified, risen Jesus is king of all. And some will enter his kingdom of salvation. Those the Father has given him will receive new birth as they come to trust in him, relying on his work on the cross. And here, as Jesus prays, he shows that his heart is to give us his Father's gift. In verse 2, that gift is described as eternal life. Which maybe sounds good to us, but not exactly great. What I mean is, if we understand eternal life to simply mean quantity of life, then we might feel a bit underwhelmed by this gift. But in verse 3, Jesus goes on to define eternal life. And it is much richer and much fuller than just living for a long, 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 long time. In verse 3, Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Yes, eternal life does mean life beyond the reach of death. But it is more than just an escape from death's clutches. It's more than life for a long, long, long time. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus said he came to bring life to the full. This is about quality of life as well as quantity. In fact, the first sign Jesus performed painted a picture of that. You may remember that back in chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. On that occasion, Jesus didn't just provide enough wine, and the wine he provided wasn't just of a passable quality. We were told Jesus provided the best wine, And he provided it in vast quantity. And here, life to the full, pictured in that wine at the wedding, here it's explained as knowing God. That is God's gift to us. Fellowship with him. Not just knowing things about him, but actually knowing him. And so Don Carson says about this statement, eternal life is not so much everlasting life as personal knowledge of the everlasting one. Of course, knowledge of the everlasting one does involve everlasting life. But it's not bare, drab, monotonous everlasting life. 
It is life enriched and enlivened by everlasting relationship. Intimacy with our loving Father, as we saw last week. Intimacy that begins already in this life. That is God's gift to us. Given to us by the Savior who died to pay for the gift. This is what we were made for. This is what we lost way back in the Garden of Eden. To begin with in the Garden, the first man and woman enjoyed personal knowledge of the Everlasting One. But they despised that fellowship with God. They chose to rebel against him instead. And ever since, humanity has been lost. Searching for true life, groping after it in the dark. Alive in our bodies, but dead in our hearts. Since the Garden of Eden, we have been restlessly hunting for the thing that will satisfy us. The relationship that will fulfill us and never ever disappoint us. The Christian writer Augustine prayed to God, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. And so, what greater gift could God give us through His Son? than personal knowledge of himself. What greater gift could he give than the rest in him we've been looking for all our lives? Even before we knew that's what we were looking for. And notice in verse 3 how this knowledge of God comes through the Son. Jesus Christ, whom the Father has sent. There is no true life. There is no knowledge of the true God apart from knowing and relying on the Son He has sent. It's only through Jesus that we enter into fellowship and intimacy with the living God. And this knowledge of God is knowledge that transforms us. The gift comes to us as we are. In all of our foolishness and our waywardness. It comes to us as we are, but this gift does not leave us as we are. It's impossible to truly know God and enter into fellowship with Him and not be transformed by the relationship. It's not an instantaneous transformation, of course. The gift of life in Christ is instantaneous. But the transformation that comes with the gift is a lifelong adventure. As we slowly learn to turn from our anxieties and trust our Father. As we slowly leave our restlessness behind and learn to seek our fulfillment in God himself. As we slowly begin to display a little of his own goodness 
in our own attitudes and words and actions. It's an incredible gift we have from God the Father. That already in this life, we can begin to enjoy personal knowledge of the everlasting one. And that relationship will not be disrupted or even interrupted by our physical death. It's a gift you can begin to enjoy today. If you'll come to the one who gives the Father's gift, his Son Jesus. The heart of our Savior is to display his Father's goodness, to give us his Father's gift, and third, to do all his Father's will. Verse 4. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Here Jesus is looking ahead a few hours to the cross and he's looking ahead with absolute commitment. All through his life and ministry on earth, Jesus has brought glory to his Father. From the incident recorded by Luke in his gospel, where as a 12-year-old, Jesus sat among the teachers in the temple, glorifying his father in his father's house. And then all through the years of his obedience to his parents, honoring his earthly father and mother as his heavenly father commanded in the law, all through the years of Jesus' public ministry in Israel as he healed and taught and performed signs of who he was and what he came to do. All through that, all the while, Jesus kept insisting, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Jesus most certainly has brought glory to his Father on earth. And now, in the next hours, he will finish the work the Father gave him to do. On the cross, with his final breath, Jesus will cry out, it is finished. It was not finished until that moment of death. The healings, the signs, the teaching, they did not finish the work the Father had given him to do. Without the cross, the work would have been eternally unfinished. And so here, Jesus reaffirms his commitment to do all his Father's will. He will glorify his Father by completing the work. He will demonstrate his love for us by doing what needs to be done so we can receive the Father's gift. But we must not imagine that Jesus takes some sort of delight in agony and death and separation from his Father. 
He delights to do his father's will. And he will do all his father's will. But Jesus also longs to be home with his father. Look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Sinclair Ferguson helps us get a sense of the deep longing behind Jesus' words here. He says, Our Lord was loved and glorified from all eternity by holy angels and archangels, by sacred cherubim and seraphim. He lived in the enjoyment of the pure atmosphere of the mutual love of the Father and the Spirit. What then must it have been like for him to come to earth and face hostility from sinners? What must it have been like emotionally for his sinless soul, deeply sensitive to the pollution in the atmosphere that surrounded us, to live among us? And then for our intolerance of his holiness to lead to his crucifixion. In a world that was unsuited to his perfect holiness, he could never be totally at home or settle down. Perhaps the nearest we ever get to it is experiencing homesickness. There must have been times when Jesus longed to be home in the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. The prospect of it sustained him through the shame. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us exactly that. Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. The writer of Hebrews goes on to tell us the joy set before Jesus was the joy of returning to his father's side. The heart of our Savior is to be with his father. And so, how great the sacrifice for him to give that up for a time in order to do his father's will and display his father's goodness and give us his father's gift. How great the love that led Jesus to such sacrifice. And how great the joy of the Father to raise his beloved faithful Son from the grave and receive him back to the glory of heaven. And how great is our privilege to benefit from all this. To be given the gift of eternal life. To be welcomed into this eternal love. Doesn't this give us a longing to be with this Father and Son who love us so much? Doesn't this make our eternal home feel more and more like our true home? 
the place where we are fully known and fully accepted, like we'll never be on this earth by anyone else. And in the meantime, doesn't all this lead us to share in the heart of our Savior? Doesn't it give us a desire to do the Father's will all the time? Doesn't it give us a desire to display something of the Father's goodness in our own lives? Doesn't it give us a desire to see others receive the Father's gift as they hear from us about Jesus and come to trust in Him? In a moment, we'll have an opportunity to respond personally and individually to this as we participate in the meal Jesus gave us. But first, we're going to respond together as one body in Christ. We're going to do that as we sing, Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away.